Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the last book that's found in your Bible, the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll begin reading this morning in chapter 1, verse 1, but the text of our sermon, the text of our study this morning will be found in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It is helpful for us to read the first chapter as we, as we hear the address of Christ, the greeting of Christ, and so much more, to the passage to the church in, found in verse number 8, the church of Smyrna. They would have received this greeting from Christ and greeting from John in this way, so it's helpful for us to read that in context with our, our sermon this morning. So please follow along as I begin reading in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
when I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and AIDS. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We will move to verse number eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Pause there and meditate on that verse alone. Verse nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thus says the Lord. May the people of God be blessed by the hearing of the word of God as was promised by the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, meet with us as... Jesus met with John, and by the livingness of your word, bring to life our souls, renew, refresh, reclaim, bring repentance. Father, we put ourselves at the feet of Jesus and the Spirit this morning that you might teach us these things, and by hearing we may become doers. Oh, Father, may it be said of Providence Church, that we would have a testimony like that of this church, this dear church, Smyrna. May we be a people who will wear a crown of life, testifying that you, the one who, who were dead and rose again, brought life to us, triumphant life, conquering life, victory. May the word of God do the work of God this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as our study of Christ in the book of Revelation continues, leaving Ephesus in the earlier verses and now into the church of Smyrna, we are going to learn that Christ has care for a church that was enduring fierce persecution and even more persecution on the horizon. Christ was not ignorant of their trials. 
In fact, Jesus would directly empathize with them in the midst of the trials. He would give them hope that was beyond the boundaries of the short term, the short life that's lived here on this earth. As someone would record the story, I read it to you. Just about 50 years after this letter was written in your Bibles to the church of Smyrna, as the persecution of the faithful Christians continued, history places a name on one of the many within this church who would courageously withstand the ultimate persecution leading to death. His name was Polycarp. He was a devout pastor in Smyrna. If he was alive, which it's likely that he was, according to how we work out the timeline of his life, he may have been one of the angels of Smyrna, one of the, 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 the elders of Smyrna. He was a devout pastor. And during the mid-second century, the Jews joined with the Roman Empire to hunt down any who would defy their gods, the Roman gods being of the Zeus and Apollos and Apollo and Aphrodite, and especially Sibyl, the goddess of earth and mountains, which was specifically celebrated in Smyrna. It was unthinkable that anyone would worship a god who was invisible, namely the risen Jesus Christ. So the historian records this. Polycarp, upon hearing that he was being sought after as a faithful minister of the gospel of Christ, did not flee Smyrna but was discovered by a child in a home when, he, when the Roman guards besieged the house. He appealed to them to give him one hour of prayer before he would surrender for a rest. When the hour was passed, he surrendered himself to the guards who he found weeping with conviction in their souls, regretting that they had been assigned to apprehending him. It was only when reinforcements arrived that he was soon brought before a jeering crowd of both Jewish and Roman spectators in a packed stadium, thirsty to see human torture and death. Standing before the Roman proconsul, he defied their orders to deny Christ as the Lord of his life and pay sole tribute to the emperor Caesar as a god, and he would say this, Eighty and six years have I served him. And he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? To which the proconsul replied, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast you, except you repent. Polycarp answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Well, Christ was acutely aware of the hardship that this church would endure, and specifically even Polycarp. And in the words of comfort, and almost like a consoling father to a hurting child, Christ expresses to the church of Smyrna truths this morning that ought to inspire great conviction and faith within our hearts. This morning we are remembering that in the first chapter in Revelation, Jesus stands in the midst of his seven churches, and this morning Jesus stands in the midst of Providence Church. In very real presence, Jesus is among us. And Jesus not only secures us, that is eternally, spiritually, in the, in the powerful security of the grip of his hand, 
but he also cares for us. He also cares for us. He is walking amidst us and holding us in his omnipotent hand. When he speaks to Smyrna, he speaks to a correspondent that is the elders, and the city of Smyrna is is described in such ways. History records Smyrna as being an independently governed city, yet loyal to Rome. Alexander the Great was said to have traveled to this area of of Western Asia, and he laid under a tree on Mount Pagos, and he was weary from his journey. And while he was laying there, he was visited, according to the myth, by a goddess, and he was instructed to build a city there. And so later, they did. They built a city there in Smyrna. And eventually a temple and an idol that would be erected and dedicated to the Roman emperor Tiberius. Tiberius, as some of the earlier Roman emperors, didn't think much of being worshipped, didn't see himself as a deity. But later, as the culture and as popularity of this deified emperor worship would build, other emperors soon would demand worship. Other Caesars, if you will, would demand worship of them in religious shrines and temples like this one built in Smyrna. And so you would not only pledge allegiance to the gods and goddesses of the culture, but simultaneously in the temples, you would also be worshiping the emperor. The third largest city in Turkey today is Izmir. I-Z-M-I-R, and that is the ancient city of Smyrna, still standing today with a population near 300,000. Smyrna would be a rival port to Ephesus and Miletus, who both of those thriving uh, ports and harbors would lose their their access to their harbors because of the silting action, if you will, the erosion action that would take place by the contributing the tributaries, the contributing rivers that run through their city. Smyrna was named after the, the uh, spice of myrrh, which was used in embalming and also in some ways is seen as an anesthetic. And the origin of the church in Smyrna is not known. We don't know how this church came about. It's likely that in the Apostle Paul's journeys in Acts chapter 19, verse number 10, there's an allusion to where Paul says, so that they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. So, so probably as Paul was in Ephesus, the, the, the word of Christ had begun to seep into Smyrna. It was one of the last cities in Asia Minor to fall to the Turks and the Muslim faith. And so the city and the church were the correspondence. But what was the commendation? What was it? that Christ would come and commend the people for. Well, he says that I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation, see in verse number nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty. The word used here for tribulation is the idea of pressure. Now, that's a really helpful word, isn't it? It's the idea maybe we might even use as stress or, or some, some ways panic. We feel caught between a rock and a hard place, and 
One person described it as being in, in a nutcracker where you have two opposing forces and, and you're in the middle and it's, it's going to do its job. It's going to crush. And that's the word used here for tribulation. It is the idea of pressure. Jesus says, I know the pressure that you're under. And by the way, do you know that Jesus knows the pressure that you're under? He is not unknowing or uncaring about the pressure you're under. And when a Christian suffers under pressure, Jesus suffers. When the Apostle Paul was known as Saul, a faithful Roman captain, and he was persecuting the church and lashing the Christians and and really overseeing, supervising their execution. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus. And in the glorious conversion discussion that they have, Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Saul had never met the, the, Jesus Christ uh, before he was being crucified. Saul was administering persecution upon the church of Christ, and Jesus saw that as a a very much an affront and an attack on his people. What you endure for the sake of Christ, Christ is enduring with you. You endure hardship and stress in relationships and misunderstandings and sometimes Uh, being estranged from family members and friends and and the heartache of not being on the same page and the complication of things that often happens as we live Christ out in our lives. Jesus is enduring that pressure with you. He knows what it's like to be in the middle of 12 people who say, you're Lord, but they they still don't get it. Jesus knows what pressure is like, not merely by the piercings and the lashings and the crown of thorns and ultimately death. Jesus knows what it's like to live under pressure. He knows not only from his human experience, but today he is with you between the rock and the hard place. He is walking in our midst and he is holding you secure. And he knows the pressure. And he knows the poverty. The poverty. Likely, as Jesus is speaking with them, he is, he is bringing out the poverty that, has, that they have succumbed to as a result of living Christ out in their lives. Likely, their businesses have been uh, diminished Uh, or even come to demise because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, the proclamation of Christ, outward living of Christ, became very much a a, um, a firebrand. It was very much a divisive thing in the life of an early Christian. And by the way, often it comes, becomes that way in our own lives as we live Christ. Just in simple faith, you might think you're no John Bunyan, you're no, um, you know, martyr, you're, you're no uh, polycarp, you're, you're not really, you know, being you know, brave and courageous, standing in front of a coliseum, making those, those big proclamations and laying down your life in front of wild beasts. And you might think to yourself, you're nobody special, and that, that's exactly right. 
living Christ out often becomes a, a dividing point, and, and there is a, a poverty that, that took place, especially in the early Christians' lives, probably due to their proclamation, their confession of Christ. So he knows, he's saying, I know what it has cost you. The Lord knows what it costs you. And he says, despite what it has cost you, you are rich. He says, but you are rich. Listen, the treasures of the faithful are found in Jesus Christ. Their riches, the riches of the faithful are in Christ. You remember Luke 12, Jesus describes there's a rich man and a fool. And the rich man, he built barns and he built bigger barns. And, and all he could dream about all night long was what he could do to, to accumulate and, and mass up, amass his, his wealth. And he would become very wealthy here on earth, but he was, he was desperately poor. In fact, he was bankrupt when it came to his spiritual life and the day of accounting with God. And God said, and Jesus said in the parable of this rich man, he said, you fool. And one person said this, and I think it's memorable, I think it's helpful, and it might be in your bulletin in the notes, no man is richer than his own soul. No man is richer than his own soul. Now, all of us have gone through seasons, and maybe you're going through seasons where, where materially and financially it, it is, you're eking it by. And it makes, it makes you feel under pressure. It's an ongoing stress that you feel you can't get out from underneath. It's not a sim- simple remedy. You wish there'd be a check in the mail for you. You're praying for God's supply. But right now, it feels like the pressure is squeezing, especially on your material circumstances. But there is no need to feel impoverished. There's no need to feel weakness. There's no need to feel without supply. No man is richer than his own soul. What condition is your soul in? Are you boasting? Are you relying? Are you laying your head down on the pillow of the treasure chest that you have in Jesus Christ? And Jesus comes to you and I, and he comes to Smyrna, and he says this, though you are poor, you are wealthy. And they need to hear that. We must dwell on things that are true. Though you are poor in Christ, you are wealthy beyond imagination. And by the way, this is the testimony of these people. He is commending them. I have come and visited your church. I am walking in your midst and I commend you in the midst of pressure, in the midst of poverty, you, you are holding fast to me, even as I am holding fast to you. 
What a commendation. May it be known among us. But he brings them some counsel. And he tells them, do not fear. Verse number 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now that about to suffer would rattle me if someone was to come to me, maybe I've been going through some hard time, and say, Brad, don't be afraid. It's going to get worse. Brad, don't be afraid. It's, there's more coming. It's not over yet. Don't be afraid. Oh, I'm telling you, my initial response is not, oh, okay, I won't be afraid. And Jesus says, do not fear. We're going to talk about that a little bit more towards the end of this study, Lord willing, if we endure through this message. But he says, fear not for what you're about ready to suffer. And listen, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, prison, by the way, in this time for religious persecution was not for, um, for a period of time. It was prison so we can set up the gallows. Prison so we can set up execution. Prison so we can sell tickets to the Colosseum. Okay, it, wasn't a whole, it was just a holding tank for, for execution. That's what's taking place here. This wasn't like, had I alluded earlier, John Bunyan, who in London was a faithful gospel preacher in England and was imprisoned for not pursuing, not preaching with a license, you know, an approval on the gospel that he was going to preach. And he was just for, for several years. This is prison, and then following prison, you get out, but not to home. Don't be afraid. You're going to be in prison for 10 days. And then what? And you'll be in prison. You'll be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful all the way until your release. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And when you die, you will be a conqueror. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You say, that's it? <laughs> that's what I get for for 10 days of tribulation, for excruciating execution. The word crown here is not the word that we find often in the New Testament, diadem. Diadem is the idea of the crown, uh, the golden crown, like King Charles is wearing today, the golden crown, beautiful gems, stones, and just sparkles and all of that. But the word used in this passage is Stephanus. Stephanus. Stephanus was a familiar 
word for crown used in that city. Pagmos, the city was built around a, a hill, a mountain, Mount Pagos. And, and the city was built around the, the base of the mountain uh, like a crown. And then on top of the mountain, on top of the hill of Smyrna, was the temple. And there at the temple, the crowns, the Stephanuses, were given to the authorities, the, the mayor of the city, the parliament, those people, they would wear crowns and be recognized with crowns. And other special people would be ordained, anointed, if you will, with these wreaths, these green wreath crowns. It was a sign of honor. It was a sign of glory. But it reflected even back unto the gods that were worshipped there in the temple. Coins unearthed and, and preserved today from Smyrna show figures wearing wreaths upon their, their heads. But the Christian here, the faithful, is promised a crown. Now, none of these believers in Smyrna probably ever wore one of those crowns. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a crown that's like the ones you see around here. But it's not only going to be for your honor and glory, but notice how he describes the Stephanus here. Look down at scripture. It's the Stephanus of what? Say it out loud. Stephanus of life. Now let me ask you something. Do you want honor or do you want life? Which would you rather have? Do you want recognition? Do you want uh, glory? Or do you want life? Stephanus, for the one who endures... You don't have to choose. Jesus gives you honor, bestows upon you his glory, and gives you what is really life. Now, every day you and I have opportunity to wear this crown, this Stephanus crown, in a sense. But every day, you and I are binding together our own crown of honor and glory, but not of life. And we want other people to bow down to our wishes. We want other people to operate on, in the way in which we want them to operate. We want to operate in the way we want to operate in the face of God, in front of God. We want to wear the crown of honor and live life according to our way. We're crafting our crown, putting it on every day, saying, I'm king, I'm lord, I'm boss. Hail to me. Give me honor, give me preference, like me, affirm me, confirm me. Do things the way I want them done. That crown. That's, the fact is, it's actually lifeless. 
You see, Jesus is, is able to take life and honor and perfectly mend them together, weave them together into a crown that you'll wear forever. Because the crown that you and I are making every day, it doesn't last forever. It's, it's fleeting. We hardly even know how we want people to serve us half the day. We change our minds. We hardly even know how we want the day to go from day to day. We change our minds how we want things to go. We're so foolish. But Jesus takes life and honor and weaves them together in an incorruptible crown that he places on the head of those who come to see him following their release from this this life. And he says, here, you live in honor and life forever. And be reminded, you only had to live for 10 days following me. You only had to serve me for 10 days. What is this 10 days? Well, many have looked at this. 10 days and have, um, you know, spoken about, um, maybe it means um, something in the eschaton that is the plan of God for the future. Maybe 10 days is 10 years, or maybe it's 10,000 years, or maybe it's just whatever period of time, and then come up with some sort of thing in history or in the future that is 10 days. We are given no clues whatsoever to read this in any other way than to say 10 days. We just don't know, but we would want to lean in and say, it seems reasonable that Jesus is saying 10 days. Now, Jesus is telling them 10 days and then you're released, and 10 days and then you die. Now, is that good to hear or not good to hear? When I was... uh, I don't, I think I might have been eight or nine years old. My mom probably remembers how old I was. I was sitting on a swing underneath a tree house that was being constructed in real time over my head. Not the smartest moments of my life. And and what would happen probably resulted in all the poor sermons that I've ever preached. But one of the boards that they were sawing that they couldn't get they just couldn't, my, my brother and uh, our neighbor, they just couldn't get this one board cut through. So I felt pretty safe swinging underneath a board that they were sawing on until it fell and hit me in the head. And there was a lot of blood and I was scared and it hurt. And mom took me to the doctor and mom assured me that it was gonna be okay And in a few moments, the doctor was going to have to uh, put a needle in my head and do some things. And it was going to be over soon. And I really believe that I felt that needle go all the way into the center of my brain, my literal brain. Although I do not understand how that could happen because now I understand there is a skull there. But like knife and butter... I felt like that thing went into the center of my brain. I still remember what it feels like. I don't know. It must have been like 
It's this imagination or something. But the words that she shared with me, that it would soon be over, did mean all the difference. It didn't take away the needle. And no doubt all of you who care for someone have had to say something similar when they're about ready to go in or in the middle of something, you tell them, it's almost over. Is that a merciful thing? It sure is. And here's what Jesus is saying here. It's only 10 days. Not a minute longer. It's only 10 days. Not 10 years. 10 days. And then it's over. God has ordained the end of your pressure. There is an end. And dear brothers and sisters, I know some of you deal with chronic pain and suffering. And in the moment you wonder, is it always going to be like this? And it's very possible that on this earth, and I cringe to say it, but we all know it's true, it's probably always going to be like that. But then, it's over. Jesus was in the grave for three days, and then it was over. And that is what he said to them in verse 8, isn't it? Look at verse number 8 with me. The words of the first and the last. The words of the one who has bookends, who places bookends on things. The, word, the, the words of the one who begins things determinatively and ends them conclusively. The words of the first and the last who died. He went all the way to the end and came to life. And that's why I said we ought to meditate on verse number eight before we get into the rest. Because if you're standing, if you're in the presence of one who conquered death and he looks at you in the eyes and he says, 10 days and then it's gonna be okay. And you're standing and you're bowing and you're praying and you're with the one who, who says, I was dead, but now I am alive. The same will happen to you. That means all the difference. We sang this morning the song, How Firm a Foundation. When through fiery trials the pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, 
I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. The ravenous lions were held at bay so that more could participate in torturing and killing Polycarp. Jews exited their seats and assisted in bringing wood and kindling to the feet of the bound Polycarp. Roman guards lit the pile and watched as the flames surrounded Polycarp. Polycarp disrobed his own body as a sign that he would gladly bear the fullest persecution for Christ's name. He was virtually naked as he was bound to the stake. But all of history records that the flames would not touch his body. As the crowd jeered and looked onward along with the indignant proconsul, the traitor to Rome was not harmed by the flames. It's been testified that almost like a shield around him, only that which God himself would have made, no flame touched his body, though he stood in the pile. Guards were infuriated and one was ordered to stick him with the sword. And upon doing so, it is told that with that death blow, the piercing of the sword, Polycarp's own blood poured out and quenched the flame. And Polycarp is one of the first recorded martyrs following the disciples themselves and was likely one of the angels that we find here in Revelation 2. The words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. So what part of the gospel is Jesus pointing this church to in the midst of their present troubles? It's the overcoming, triumphant work of Christ over death and the grave. Jesus points to himself in front of the church to say, he is risen, I am risen. His resurrection is given to them as both a sign and a promise that their death will lead to life and life with him and that greater life is is in store for them. So what does Jesus point us to in the hearing of this passage? Well, your trials are only 10 days long. They aren't forever. Those who are hidden away in Jesus Christ while they endure trials that feel forever, are told that trials are not forever. And that something so wonderful, it can only be compared to Christ's resurrection, awaits them. You see, believers don't come clawing out of the grave, barely surviving, panting at the gates of glory. No, in the moment in which you breathe your last breath, You are transformed into the likeness of Christ in the full essence of resurrection power. At first reading, it might seem like Jesus is saying, just wait, the best is yet to come, endure. But that's not entirely the right reading or the hearing of this message in our hearing this morning. Look at what Christ is saying. 
Christ is saying, because I am without bounds, outside of time and yet within time, I am able to give to you an enduring, relevant, meaningful grace in the here, in the now. I am here with you in the now. I hold you as one of the, light of the lampstands. So, first of all, we need to confess our unbelief that God cares for us in the here. Much of we had just shared the past few moments is just wait, the best is yet to come. But we also, in faith, press into Jesus in the now. I'm among you. I hold you. I know the pressure. I know the poverty. Forsake independence. Forsake this crown-making ambition of your arrogant soul. Stop building wreaths every day and crowning yourself. The crown of honor and life is in the hand of Jesus for you. Put on the assurances of the gospel. Put on the promises of the good news of Jesus Christ that speak into your troubles. Your troubles are temporary. They are not permanent. By the way, if you're here today and you are not lost, you are, you are not in Jesus Christ, you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the, the good news is for you that your troubles can only be 10 days long. But the bad news for, is for you that if you refuse Jesus' invitation, your troubles have only begun. And believer, that gives us a conversation for the gospel into people's lives that are full of crisis right now, doesn't it? It gives us an opportunity to minister and it, it, it works on our hearts too as we share the gospel and we, we want to share the gospel with those who were around who are hurting. We could say to them, it doesn't need to last that long. And fourthly, we praise the one who demonstrated power over the last enemy. The one who is, was dead and now is risen. And he shares that resurrection. He shares that victory over the grave with all who will believe upon him. And so we must live in the resurrection power now. We must live in the resurrection power now. Let us pray. <clears throat>